0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: This week's Parsha, Ahari Mot, and into Kedoshim, uh, which is next week's Parsha, they're often read together. Remember, we have four added Shabbatot whenever we add the leap month of the second Adar. We add a second Adar every so often so that Passover doesn't wind up in the summer. Uh, so to rectify the lunar calendar, we add an Adar Bet, an Adar 2, to the calendar. I was born in Adar Bet, uh, which means I'm really seven, only seven. <laughs> 17, right? <laughs> which is lovely to know. Um, life-affirming. So we... uh so we split out these Parshiot, we double up so that when we add a darbet, we have Parshiot to read, you know, so that we have um because we have four extra Shabbats to deal with in terms of a reading. So generally these are doubled up, ahari harimoting kidoshin. So the um this is kind of the core of the Levitical worldview in some ways. It's very expressive of the Levitical worldview. It is a text that is very difficult for us as Western modern readers to deal with. Uh, and it is the one that people love to turn to, right? Who want to I just watched this wonderful comedian, Samantha B. I've never seen her before. Rabbi Nick sent me a thing she did on Ted Cruz. <laughs> Which was hilarious. So, uh, but the part of it, one shot was him coming up to the podium to speak after someone who had been speaking was introducing him, and the person who was speaking before him was saying, was quoting our parsha, saying, you know, and those who lie with another man, and man, they deserve that, they deserve to be killed, they deserve death. Not my words, his. Not my words, his. They deserve death. Then Ted Cruz is invited up to speak. So it's like, you know, but anyway, um, the the point being people love, right, who have an agenda to point to this text um, while ignoring the rest of the book of Leviticus, the rest of the laws in Deuteronomy, the rest of the laws in right? So it's very selective. It doesn't mean this text is unproblematic. Fortunately, we're not fundamentalists. And so fortunately, we can appreciate Leviticus in its own time for what it was about. So what I'd like to do with you today is do a little bit of that. Uh, So rather than focusing on necessarily necessarily just the issue of um, homosexuality and why it's addressed the way it is, I'll touch on that. Um, uh, But I'd like to kind of get at with you. So I've given you a larger packet this morning than I generally give you because I want you to keep it. So I'm going to give you this material like I always do, um, but it's a little more terse, right? It's a little, I mean, it's a little more dense. It's a little longer in terms of the actual text uh, because I want you to hang on to it because next time somebody wants to pull out something from the Bible, I don't care where in the Bible it is, when they want to yank something out of the Bible and hurl it at somebody else or a group of people, I want you to pull this out and send it to them Um, because it is a collection of, of two sources. Uh, both of which I respect greatly, but it it treats Leviticus in its own context, in its own time, and is a wonderful scholarly approach, you know, to dealing with this. For those of us who can't deal with it when it's in real life, I don't deal with this very well when it comes at me in real life. Right? I start frothing at the mouth and it's not pretty. It, I have a very hard time staying calm. (laughs) And staying out of my emotions when people want to throw the Bible at me, right? Because I'm like, oh, really, really? Okay, let's talk. Let's, let's talk. To her. Let's do that, right? So it's very hard. Um, this is a very kind of wonderful way to have somebody reasonably explain uh, some about some of what's going on here. All right. So what is going on here? We're looking at a book written by who? Who write? Who wrote Leviticus? The Thank you. Oh my gosh, I was scared for a minute there. Um,
2: <laughs>
1: so it's written by the priests. This is, this is the priestly manual, right? So Leviticus is not, is not super concerned with the people. I mean, it's concerned with the people, but it's super concerned with the priests. And it comes from a worldview of the priests. It comes from what they're worried about. It comes from how they understand the universe to be constructed and put together. It comes from their priorities. Tell me something that you know about the priestly worldview and their priorities. What do we know? Cause this is, this is emblematic of the priesthood and their concerns. What are their concerns? What's their worldview? What's going on for the priests? Purity. purity. Okay. So purity, yeah. sanctity. So those kind of yeah. could go together, right?
2: Relationship with-
1: so relationship to or with God
2: their survival. Mm-hmm.
1: Aha. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> their
1: job security.
3: <laughs> yep, yep.
0: Formal procedures.
1: Procedure. Absolutely. Separation. Aha, thank you. Thank you. Very important. Control. Control of ha <laughs>
3: <Can we see> ha. <laughs> Of the
2: community. Patrilineage.
1: Patrilineage. Who's your father? Whose clan do you back do back belong to? Mm-hmm.
2: We can trace them back. They have been traced back genetically. Cohen today have genes that are similar to...
1: Oh, so, so, why are they cons- why, so why is patrilineage their concern? Because
3: that's how we're it.
1: So, because that, that's who serves. Yeah, right, right. That's who's entitled <laughs> to the, to the, you know, the title priest is someone who directly descends from a priest. Yeah.
4: Exclusivity, maybe goes
1: Alright, so, so exclusivity, to us that means something that I don't think you mean. So, what's another way to say what that's about?
2: The um, separation. The
1: union.
4: A group.
1: Particular group. S- meaning the Levitical tribe. Well, meaning the
4: priests.
3: The and priests.
1: Priests. Yeah. priests are not a tribe.
4: Well,
1: okay. Right. So, so the Levitical tribe. So that they're because what this tends to mean for us is I'm in, you're out, yeah. and so okay. I exclude everybody else. This is not how ancient Israel understood the priests only coming from the clan of Levi. Right, it, w- it was that they were the ones on the hook. God picked them to be on the hook for the rest of the Israelites. So yes, it's exclusive, but it, we tend to th- exactly we tend to think of that as a privilege for them. It's a privilege, but it's a, but it's a huge risk. Right, it's not, you don't get they didn't get they didn't get to choose. <laughs> right,
0: they're responsible for the actions of people outside there
1: that's right so co- with exclusivity comes right that they bear the responsibility
2: but they also have control oh, yeah, the they also end up having control. is there a difference between a clan and a tribe
1: yes oh yeah yes clan yeah, is control. an extended family unit okay. tribe is bigger than clan uh, we can all belong to the tribe of Judah you don't belong to my clan okay. Several clans belong... Correct. Correct.
4: I mean, I think they're also concerned that there are amazed back to the relationship with God, you know, like their interpretation of what they're supposed to do and what God wants them to do. So
1: the procedure, the procedures that are involved in maintaining a relationship to God. All right. So, so that, this is the meta. So let's put blue by all the meta stuff, right? So... So relationship to God right I guess you could say job security um, maybe in some respect control and procedure um, the way that those meta issues get expressed are in then the details of things like purity and sanctity that's the, those that's the way they work out having the relationship with God stay copacetic right procedures involve sacrifice involve incense involve lighting the menorah right so those are the so you have the meta issues but when you get down to how do we do all of that it becomes about purity and sanctity and here's a big one very big one is separation why what is separation about we know this why separation so important what does it have to do with the ancient worldview The ancient Israelite worldview. So that's one category of what needs to be separated. Why separation?
4: I think it keeps I I just think it keeps them together as a tribe.
1: And and I'm talking about separation in general as a concept. Why is separating things so important?
2: Because the bad relationship
1: so, yes, but wh- wh- where does this originate? Separation.
3: Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Oh,
1: Creation.
3: Separation. They didn't make it up.
1: Oh, right. They did not make up separation being the key. That is the worldview they inherit. How is the world created? Separating light from dark. Separating land from water. Separating the upper waters from the lower waters. Because the ancient cosmology is, it is all chaos. So you're talking
3: about order.
1: It, for them, order equals creation. Oh, wow. right. Do you get it? This, this is critical. To understand this text. If you don't understand that. You do not understand what's written here. They believe. That the entire universe stands. Because there is separation. There is individuation. There is categorization. And if those categories. Start to bleed into one another. You have the beginnings of the undoing of creation. You have the possibility of existential chaos returning and every little bit of things that should be separated coming together contaminates the land, contaminates everything and leads to the possibility of the chaos of war, of exile. And that is how they understand, by the way, the exile. That's how they understand losing the battle and being exiled. We did stuff that caused enough contamination that the earth spat them out. Israel spat them out. That is the worldview that we're working with.
0: So is that why um, uh, rabbinic writings become sort of progressively more separating throughout I mean if you look at how much separation is there at the end of the first six days it's you know light versus dark and water versus land and things like there's not I mean yes things have been separated but like not to the extent of this causes something now you have to now you have to bring an unblemished calf in order to do a sacrifice in order to get yourself back and that keeps on going on and on and on so you have this like hyper, this hyperactivity to keep on. Once you've started separating, you can't stop separating. You have to keep on separating all
1: the time. Nice. So things continue to go along from creation, except they, they devolve. And so what fixes that devolution? Procedures. Procedures. Right now, because what happened? What, what is the Noah story? The Noah story is it got so bad that chaos reigned. And what happens when chaos reigns? Everything is obliterated. The waters from above, what did God do? God allowed the waters from above and the waters from below to meet. To return to, prim- not primordial, but to return to a certain kind of watery chaos. Right? Because remember, water existed in our text before anything. Water already exists. remember? sheet, and the spirit of God hovered over the face of Tehom of the deep. The deep is already there. So there seems to be some consciousness about water is primor- is like before creation, right? So when you return it to this watery mess, th- that's what happens when human beings corrupt everything. So after that, now we have procedures now. You can kill animals, but it has to be mitigated by <laughs> procedures. And once they become a people living in their own land, now there's major procedures. Unblemished, blah, blah, blah. So what Richard is pointing to is after the destruction of the temple and the priesthood goes away, we still see in the writings of the rabbis the only way they now can continue this idea of separation An order is to make everything a taxonomy. Everything. Because they can't do anything anymore. They can't mitigate the relationship with God anymore based on tahara, on purity and impurity. They're powerless. They're impotent. Now, how many of them would like to go back? They say all the time they want to go back. Really? Right? They like their jobs. They don't want to hand over their authority to the priests. But the instinct to separate and categorize and keep everything ordered continues and in some ways intensifies once they don't have any power. Right? To actually do that stuff.
0: Well, it legitimizes them. It It legitimizes them. Absolutely.
1: So kashrut expands immensely, doesn't it? Right? The ideas of kashrut. Now we have to have two sets of silverware. You know, that's the rabbis. Taking this stuff to the nth degree, right? It's It's an existential OCD. That is our people's shtick,
4: and not just our people. When you say taxonomy, and you know, immediately, of course, every single living creature has to have its species, its Latin name, its this name. We just we
2: can't stop ordering things
1: because it is a human tendency. Um, Other folks, however, like I look at. Certain Eastern traditions where they, these monks spend how long making this sand mandala? Like, you know, a year. Like with every grain of sand like this, uh, you know, hunched over, causing arthritis. Hunched over all day, every day. And what do they do when it's finished? Wipe it. They wipe it clean. And they start over. So because that it's a very ingrained teaching in that culture that we should not be attached to things that are temporal, that we we need to step back from our desire to order and control everything. It's not Jewish.
4: <laughs>
1: I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's not Jewish. We're like, don't even step near the mandala. Oh, my God. You almost breathed on it. Yeah, I worked on that, right? So we, it's not Jewish. reminds me of spider, trying to build a spider
4: you know, the spiders before it and they have the exact same web as the other one before it and then, you know, a fly goes in it or something and sort of messes it up and and they start over the purpose and then they start over again too. And I think that there's also I mean I, I think about like my dad and every day thinking about like everything he does, he does for his parents. You know, like it's it's a way to keep can keep back to that place or the, the ancient and and with with sort of no regard for the presence and and what's going on? And, and,
1: and yeah, but, you know, and you sort of see the the yin and the yang of it all, right? So fear-based. it there there it's there's things about it that are fear based that are kind of take you out of the moment, um, and there's things about it that are that make sense. You know, that kind of go, okay, I feel better. Like now I know what species and what genus, and it's all you know, it's like okay, you know, I feel better. Like so, I mean, people go into science. The people who name those bugs based on a different shape antenna, like. They love that, right? So I think their personalities that are drawn right to that, and those of us are kind of like whatever. It's a bug, Um, (laughs) but but let's talk about what do bugs mean (laughs) and what do bugs bugs mean? mean? (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right. So so that that is what we're coming out of when we, and then if you take something chaotic like what is one of the most chaotic things we can possibly imagine dealing with when we're dealing with human beings? Sex. Sex. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So you take sexuality, you take attraction. I know, you know.
3: No, it's where we're sitting right oh, under here. it.
1: But would you just pump it up like one or two? It's a little cold. It's a little chaotic in here. It's a little chaotic in terms of temperature. Yes, Miriam, it is. Um,
2: <clears throat>
1: sexuality, erotic anything... Energy that's erotic is by definition chaotic because we don't choose it. Right? Like, we don't choose where we're attracted. We don't choose where we're drawn. We can choose what we do. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying we can't control it. But eroticism is by definition chaotic. We don't even generate it. Right? It just kind of Happens. We can encourage it. We can create conditions that would allow for it. This is why no dancing. Right. So um, <laughs> it leads to dancing. Right. I love that. Joke. Um, Men are separated from women. Of course. So because you don't want to create the conditions for attraction to a um, be be encouraged and and worse to distract you from what you're supposed to be doing because it's there. Why do you think we have a? Mechitza? We don't have a mechitzah because we're puritanical. We have a machitza because we know everybody's looking over the machitza. Everybody's feeling it. Everybody's attracted. Everybody. So, well, the men more than the women, I got to be honest. But the mechitzah's for the men. Just to be clear, I was taught this in yeshiva, folks. I'm not making this up. So the mechitzah's for the men um, because they're always attracted, all the time. And it's this terrifying force <laughs> right that's what Lilith is about. If you have an erotic dream as a man, you got to blame somebody, right? Lilith did it. Lilith came and oh my god. So, um because it's it's scary to not have control over what we
2: feel. To be distracted.
1: To be distracted is from whatever. From whatever you've committed to is is upsetting, like on some levels if you're deeply committed. Um so So sexuality is a huge issue all over the ancient world. It's still a huge issue in um, traditional societies. We've talked a lot about this, about women's sexuality belongs to men. We've talked about this. Um, I think it's still a huge issue in our culture. We've just gone and flipped the whole thing over, and now it's just sexuality everywhere all the time, and we sexualize little girls with what they wear, and... It's horrifying. So you know, there's there's kind of repressing it and dealing with it by trying to control it and minimize it and squash it and there's dealing with it the way we do in our culture which is it's just everywhere. It's in everything. You want to sell a car put, you know, somebody in a bikini on the front of the car, you know, who's rail thin and very white. You know, okay. So um so so we're going to look at Leviticus and we're going to look at it within this context and you can see we're just going to read through Without discussing right now, I want we're just going to read through so you can start to hear what's really going on in terms of order, control. Obviously, some way terrifying discomfort with, right, um, with the way the world kind of actually works. All right, so 17:1. Who's prepared to read?
0: The Lord spoke to Moses saying. Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelite people and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel slaughters an ox or sheep or goat in the camp, or does so outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the Lord's tabernacle, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is in order that the Israelites may bring the sacrifices which they have been making in the open, that they may bring them before the Lord to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and offer them as sacrifices of well-being to the Lord, that the priest may dash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and turn the fat. Into smoke, as a pleasing odor to the Lord, and that they may offer their sacrifices no more to the goat demons after whom they stray. This shall be to them a law for all time, throughout the ages. Go on. Say to them further: If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who reside among them offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Go on. And if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who reside among them partakes of any blood, I will set my face against the person who partakes of the blood and I will cut him off from among his kin. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have assigned it to you for making expiation for your lives upon the altar. It is the blood as life that affects expiation. Therefore, I say to the Israelite people, no person among you shall partake of blood, nor shall the stranger who resides among you partake of blood.
1: All right. So then comes uh, an Israelite or any stranger, right, hunting, right, mm-hmm. um, needs to pour out the blood, right? And any person, citizen or stranger who eats what has died, Or has been torn by wild beasts, right? Shall bathe in water and remain unclean. Because that's not good. Right? So something that has been torn is something that is Trefa. Torn. Hence the word Treif. We don't eat what's torn. We shecht it. So Talk to me about, we've just had this long whole, huge introduction to this. What's this dealing with? Okay, what, so what's it dealing with? Beyond procedure, what's it dealing with? Okay. Tell me more. Life and death. Life and death. Life and death. So if there are forces in this universe that are at work always to kind of pull things off, the rails, what is the thing the priestly world is concerned about with this particular hunk of Torah? What's the urge? What's going on that they're trying to mitigate? Murder. Taking life. Killing. We all kill. And we do it constantly. Anyone who eats chicken, okay, Pam's excused, anybody who eats chicken or meat, right, or fish, we kill. We kill constantly. The priestly world is concerned. The biblical worldview is very concerned with our license to kill. So what is the... I hope you took a packet, everybody. Yes, you got a packet? Two pages. Yes.
2: Two pages?
1: I think, yeah. Um, All right, so this is an intro into Dr. Tikva Frymer-Kensky of Blessed Memory. My biblical year teacher, who, uh, this is from her book, uh, In the Wake of the Goddesses. She is dealing with early Israelite cu- culture and religion emerging from pagan Canaanite religion. We're clear that that's what happened, yes? Okay. Israelite religion emerging from Canaanite polytheistic paganism. That's what she's interested in. She spoke fluent, uh, she translated fluently Akkadian and Ugaritic texts and Sumerian. So she, she knew the parent languages of Hebrew. So she, when she looks at a Hebrew word, what she knows is, here's what that meant to the Sumerians. Here's what that meant in the neighborhood 4,000 years before Israelite emerges on the scene. She knows... So when she writes, there's an authority for me that she writes with that even sometimes if she's over the top, I know she's grounded, right, in the, the language and concepts and worldview of the ancient Near East. Okay. So go to page 195. Everybody good?
2: good.
1: <laughs> I don't want to lose anybody here. 195. So we're gonna to go to something Richard was talking about. We're gonna to go to the sentence that begins, once humans took the first steps towards culture. That? Yep. Okay? Yeah, got it. Once humans took the first steps towards culture, this is, she's talking now about the Israelite worldview. She's talking about Genesis. She's talking about ancient Israelite mythology, right? Once humans, in our story, took the first step towards cultures, they became less animal-like. And God acknowledges this difference by providing them with clothes, clothing made of Animals. animal skins. Why is she, why is she pointing that out? The hierarchical boundary. This is a hierarchy now. God takes presumably an animal and kills it and gives Adam and Eve their skin as clothing. This is a demarcation between humanity and the animal kingdom saying humanity now is a higher-ranking being than the animals, right? Um, And is even more explicit after the flood, like we talked about, um, that it progresses. Humans could kill animals for food after the flood without eating the blood, right, sparing the blood, whereas no animal could kill a human without forfeiting its own life. The boundary between human and animal is uncrossable and part of the very definition of human being. However, in experiential reality, this uncrossable boundary of human existence could be crossed by mating with animals. So this is going to take us to the next part of our parsha, right? So one, one way we can cross the boundary between human and animal is to act like animals and kill something and eat it with its blood and just kind of indiscriminately kill something and consume it. That's what animals do. We have to, if we're really trying to make sure there's a separation, that's one of those boundaries. So now everything that you're going to eat, we just read it. Anything meat like <laughs> anything that was alive that you're going to eat has to be brought to the sanctuary. There must be another level of understanding and participation in expressing and giving of that to both God, the source of life and the priesthood, there has to be an understanding beyond just tearing into something and eating it. Do you see how that's now that if you're going to kill something to eat it, there has to be procedure around it. That's how we maintain our humanity, that there should be something attached to taking a life. It isn't something we just do. We don't just pick up something from the floor and chew into it. That we, it becomes a sanctified act that involves God and involves community and involves ritual so that there is a serious understanding of what we've done when we take an animal's life to eat it.
2: And that's why Jewish women have cooked meat. Until it looks like shoe leather. 100%. <laughs> and it never 100%. A drop of blood God forbid. God forbid. I grew up, I, I never had a steak
0: properly <laughs> cooked. Right? <laughs> Until I was about well, to My mother, uh, excuse me, my mother uh, would put uh, a lot of salt on my raw meat uh, on a wooden drain board. And get all the blood out of it. At nine years old, I watched this. At ninety-three, I'm learning why.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Wonderful, Reuben. That
0: also,
4: <laughs> it to, you know the gods and the priests and all of that is keeping the priesthood eating. You know, like they're getting out of it too. It's like tithing, right? In a sense. That sure, because
1: because they don't get flocks. Right. Right. They don't get land. Their, their portion is service. So they have to be fed. You you can't have a priesthood with no way to make a living. They're busy serving the Israelites. So the Israelites feed the priest. You pay the rabbi salary because the rabbi doesn't have time to make a living. God knows outside (laughs) of serving (laughs) the Jewish people. So, so the community says, okay, we get it. We're going to take part of what we earn and support the people who are are our religious leaders. Because leaders, they've, they've given their life to service. And they don't have a choice. The priests didn't have a choice. Right. We have a choice.
2: I know as far as my husband, I, I never understood that. He would see a spider in the house, would put, put a piece of paper, and bring it outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, I said, the only thing he killed was flies. But <laughs> everything Absolutely. else, he would actually gently bring it outside.
1: And so... And Jew- Jewish tradition and the biblical worldview would consider that a good thing. Yeah. That we should have regard for life.
0: Buddhist, that, <laughs> Buddhist would do that too.
1: Right. That's that that all,
0: compassion for living things.
1: all traditions that want to cultivate our humanity cultivate a sense of, I shouldn't just indiscriminately kill what I can. Right? That that's, somehow that's what animals do. And I'm not judging them. That's who they are. That, that's what they're supposed to do. Nobody, nobody's judging that. But is that what we want to be? Torah would say absolutely, 100%. Not just intellectually and spiritually and whatever. Of course not. But also because things start to, like, um,
4: like right here, when you start to cross those boundaries,
1: it gets really, really, really scary. But
4: don't animals just kill to eat for for their own survival? Yes. if
2: you think yes. about No, this.
1: they kill for pleasure You're yes. done <laughs> 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 Alright That's hilarious Alright, so now let's go to 18 So, did you did you remember what Tickwood just said? Okay, so yes uh,
0: Is it fair to say that uh, a lot of these injunctions were written uh, in response to the Canaanite culture as it existed at that time?
1: So some of it definitely is about one of the ways that you're going to make sure you are Israelite and you identify as Israelite because that's another separation that's really important because they don't want any backsliding, right? No backsliding into Canaanite pagan, which of course was where they came from. That's what, that was familiar to them, right? So how do you prevent that? You're going to make sure you strengthen Israelite identity and you're going to separate from those people. And so the way, you, one of the ways you do that, Right? Is to say, you're not gonna eat what they eat. And you're not gonna do what they do anymore. Some of it just gets reconstructed. Offerings are, offerings are universal. Right? Israelites reconstruct offering. But Canaanites make offerings. And sacrifices. So, you know, there's some things that get reconstructed. There's some things that it's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, you can't do that anymore. Cause that's what they do. Right? No evergreens in the living room. In the wintertime. You can't do that anymore. Right? Okay. All right, so 18.
0: Verse 1. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, I, the Lord, am your God. You shall not copy the practices of the land of Egypt where you dwelt or of the land of Canaan to which I am taking you, nor shall you observe their laws. My rules alone shall you observe and faithfully follow my laws. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my laws and my rules by the pursuit of which man shall live. I am the Lord. None of you shall come near any anyone of his own flesh to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Your father's nakedness, that is the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. The nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's, whether born into the household or outside, do not uncover their nakedness. The nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, do not uncover their nakedness, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, who has been born into your father's household, she is your sister, do not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's flesh. Do not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's flesh. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. Do not approach his wife. She is your aunt. Do not uncover the nakedness of your daughter in law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her (coughs) nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is the nakedness of your brother. Do not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you marry her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter and uncover her nakedness. They are kindred. It is depravity. Do not marry a woman as a rival to her sister and uncover her nakedness in the other's lifetime. Do not come near a woman during her period of impurity to uncover her nakedness. Do not have carnal relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not allow any of your offspring to be offered up to Molech, and do not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman, it is an abhorrence. Do not have carnal relations with any beast and defile yourself thereby, and let no woman lend herself to a beast to mate with it, it is perversion. Do not defile yourself in any of those ways, For it is by such that the nations that I am casting out before you defiled themselves. Thus the land became defiled, and I called it to account for its iniquity, and the land spewed out its inhabitants. But you must keep my laws and my rules, and you must not do any of those abhorrent things, neither the citizen nor the stranger who resides among you. For all those abhorrent things were done by the people who were in the land before you, and the land became defiled." So let not the land spew you out for defiling it, as it spewed out the nation that came before you. All who do any of those abhorrent things, such persons shall be cut off from their people. You shall keep my charge not to engage in any of the abhorrent practices that were carried on before you, and you shall not defile yourselves through them. I, the Lord, am your God. Okay.
1: Does any of that make more sense now?
4: Procreation and so and survival. So if you sleep with your daughter, then the genes down the line might have an issue. You know, if um, you know, if you look at it in the context of that, it's kind of an interesting. In that space, it's very interesting.
1: Right. When when procreation is how you survive. Right. Right. That your clan has to be large enough. Right. To provide. Right. You have to have people to work the field. You have to have people to tend the flocks. So you. Right. You know, at that point, having a lot of children was one of the ways that you ensured the sons was how you survived. Yes, yeah, how you survived.
4: It's also their interpretation of chaos.
1: So, so let's look at that. So when we look at 18 and we look at things like um, verse 8. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. What does that mean? He owns that. Her. Her. He he owns and controls her sexuality. So the violation is not against her. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife because in so doing, you have disrupted the order of things. He controls that. You as a son are not entitled to that. Cause if you were, what would happen then? Cause it's not necessarily his mother. They had multiple wives. So my, f- someone's father's wife might not be their mother. And if, if the person who has control of that woman's sexuality, it's, if it's not exclusive, what could happen in a family? Chaos! And if you marry, a, if you're a man in your 50s and you marry a 20 year old, you likely have a 20 year old son. Right? So somebody's stepmother could be their age. And you're living together.
2: Not only that, but they used to. I, I'm reading a book uh, uh, first, uh, The Red Pen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you think of Leah, who had mm-hmm, seven, mm-hmm, but they mm-hmm. had Bill and...
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, Concubines, and yeah? The
2: Concubines. They had a lot of children. Yeah. They, and, and the men in those days had a lot of. White yeah. and children for so many, but depending if it was a son or not, it became a wife. Otherwise yeah. any, anybody who labored as a slave, they would he was allowed to do it, allowed to have sex, but it was not considered uh how was the word? Yeah.
1: C- yeah. Correct, correct. So what we're dealing with here though is is it's prohibitions on men about violating The sexual property of another man. Because that is how one keeps order. Sexuality is dangerous. It is very dangerous. It is uncontrollable in some ways. So we put major controls on it. Look how much of Torah. You know how terse Torah is. Look how much of Torah is dedicated to who you cannot sleep with as a man. They are off limits, and it tells you why. Whose sexuality that is, in terms of what male it belongs to. So it is in that context that we get, and you shall not sleep with animals, right? Because this is what Tikva was pointing to was because the, then you start to slide into really scary, right, blurry lines between human and animal, right? So we get controls around eating like animals and we get controls on sexually behaving like animals. They're in the same, they're the same category for Torah. I want you to hear this. That's the same category. Eating and sex are the same words. In ter- not the same words. Uh, God forbid. Um, the, same, the same words that are used about them negatively, to eva, right? Um, abomination is used for eating. If you eat something that is trafe, it's an abomination. Same thing for sex. There is not a weight given to the sex stuff that isn't given to the blood and eating stuff in Torah. We want to pull those apart. So the same folks who want to pull out one line about so in a man shall not lie the lyings of a woman. That's how it's worded, by the way. Now, do you hear that differently? A man shall not lie with a man the lyings of a woman. That's what it says in the Hebrew. The, a man shall not lie the lyings of a woman with another man. Do you hear it differently now? How do you hear it differently? What's different now? Correct. Correct. That's the key. You, a man shouldn't lie with another man in the role of woman oh, being wow. penetrated by a man. That's not man. Because Cause now you're starting to blur the lines again in ways that are really not good. Man is man and he has sex the way a man has sex. He can't do it with an animal and he shouldn't put himself in the sexual position of female.
3: So
1: say, let me just say that one again. Thou shalt not lie. The li- I'm going to go to the Hebrew. It's easier. <laughs> and with a male, you shall not lie. The lyings of a woman. It is an abomination.
2: But does that mean that even though you don't lie like a woman, you can penetrate like a man. So
1: this is a very interesting question. If you're on top as the man with another man, is it a violation of this? So this is a very interesting question. We don't know. We don't know, right? And and how do we know it's not just Sexual activity between the same gender—how do we know that? What's missing if that's what's really about?
4: Women. Yeah. Women. Doesn't, say anything, about Doesn't say anything about women? Except that they're <laughs> slaves,
1: no matter what. <laughs> except, except their sexuality belongs <laughs> to other people. But women—women women having sexual encounters with each other don't violate anybody anybody's sexual rights to somebody.
4: What about men lying with unrelated children? It's
1: not here. It's not here. So do you understand that if we were, if this were truly a text about morality, that would be here. And actually, there's a very disturbing conversation in the Talmud about a three-year-old that has been penetrated. Are they a virgin or not? Right? And the concern is not with the trauma of the child. The conversation is halachic. Because it's not in here that... It's not in here. So, 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 and I'm, I'm not happy about that. I'm not proud about that. I'm just saying what it proves is that you cannot tell me in ancient Israel it would have been acceptable for a man to sleep with a three year old. It would not have been. That's how we know this is not a moral text. This is not concerned with morality. That was not the issue. The issue is how do you prevent Categories from bleeding into each other in a way that will upset the entire universe being organized so that it continues. That's what this is concerned about. That's what defines abomination is when you violate that order. We can't mix linen and wool. You can't mix something made from plants, fabric made from plants, and fabric made from animal.
0: You can't mix them. But isn't... Isn't this in some ways, I mean, bringing it forward, isn't this the great challenge of our time in that, you know, how much mixing can we accept as a society and still live? I mean, if you think about the whole controversy about immigration, ultimately it comes down to who do we want to be separated from? You know, how much chaos can we absorb when peoples who aren't supposed to be together are all of a sudden together?
1: Very good, Richard. Which brings us to Maurice Harris. So you're gonna go to the page that says we can and must as the top four, top words on your top left hand corner. Cause okay. I That's cut off the page footnote numbers.
0: Footnote 26 at the bottom. Footnote
1: 26 is the first footnote at the bottom of the page. Yeah?
2: Got it? Okay.
1: Starting at the sentence, we can and must. To Richard's point. I swear I didn't pay him. We can and must leave behind the misguided elements of Leviticus that spoke to people living within a narrow ancient historical moment while simultaneously lifting out of the text its transcendent core impulse, which is to urge us to conduct even the most private and intimate aspects of our lives with the intention of bringing greater holiness into being. So to Richard's question, like, so we get it that we're not in the Levitical world anymore, so what? So two, I I know you have a different question, which I'll get to, um, but I think the impulse is so. What so? What of this still speaks to us? Like what? So what are we to take from this? Um, this this whole business that we just read. All religions have been true for their time and their culture and at their level of knowledge of the cosmos. What is important is to take and separate what is temporal from what is universal in that religion. What needs to be discarded is what is temporal and culture bound, returning, uh, retaining what is universal, keeps the spiritual intact and present, right? He's not going to answer exactly what that is. And he's not going to answer Richard's question about, okay, but where, where do you stop the mix? where do you, how much mixing, if we're going to throw out separation altogether, how much mixing is okay? what isn't okay at what age is somebody acceptable as a sexual partner if we're going to throw out all separation right so you know, w- there are things that then we have to figure out um as a society did you yeah, want to, so say something?
0: I mean, to amplify on that particular point it's it's sort of like um in the current in the current our current understanding there's much less of a of a stigma that's now associated with with homosexual relationships, as long as they are committed and caring relationships. There's still, regardless of the genders of the people involved, there's still this kind of cultural, sort of like looking down your nose at just mindless sexual activity just for the sake of having sex. Even though, you know, you'd have to presumably come up with a rationale for saying why that's wrong.
1: (laughs) Right, so, it, but there's less stigma for men with women than there is for the woman involved in those situations. So it's not equal, and I think that's about still the impulse to control women's sexuality. But,
0: but that's, a, that's a, say, political thing and not an ethical thing, my guess. But
1: I believe most people would judge it as an ethical infraction on the part of a woman who sleeps with lots of men. Absolutely. Not so much men who sleep with many women. And I think that ethical judgment of women's sexuality is still a result of this instinct that women's sexuality should be contained, should be mitigated, should be legislated, should be controlled, you know, because because it's dangerous. Yeah, because men can't
0: control Yeah, because I think that in the back of men's heads, in the back of men's heads, they're aware that that's like the most uncontrollable force in the world. You know, the on the street, course. on the street, the guy saying, you know, we're very lucky God gave us two heads, but you can only use one at a time.
1: <laughs> so there's, there's joking and there's all kinds of flip stuff about men's indiscriminate sexuality, including, you know, keeping track. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you're cool, right? And, and in some communities, it's cool how many babies they have with women who are not their wives like that's that's really that's your mark of virility is you have all these children outside and you're not married um so you know and but a woman who does that who has lots of babies by different men you you know you, you can just see how i think there's still that there's a difference in terms of women's sexuality is still a very different thing than men's and nobody cares how many women women sleep with in my experience
3: so,
1: nobody cares if you're gay a gay woman nobody cares how many women you sleep with as a woman I feel like
4: nobody cares I feel it's like women so who cares so much of this that just keeps ringing with me and resonating is fear you know yeah? fear of loss of who you are in some, in some way fear of the fact that your impulse you know that there's this inner self that's not going to be able to kind of monitor what's
1: what your inner impulse means. so so every wisdom tradition every spiritual tradition is right to be afraid of our instincts because they stink a lot of the time we smoke you know we do drugs we drink too much we shop too much we have sex sometimes you know with the wrong people and you know, we're not great we don't have a great track record for controlling our aggression our greed our lust for things and status and control and people like we're, we're not, we're not saints and, and every realistic wisdom tradition knows that. So the question always for me is, we should be afraid. Look, look at our own flippin' war history recently. Are you kidding me? Iraq? For real? What was that? That was revenge. But while we're at it, let's not worry about revenge on the right people, right people, on the people who actually did something. Let's take revenge so that we get to blow something up, um, but it also strategically advance our position to get more of something that we want. Control, access, right? It's sick what we do. It's sickening what we are capable of. And our tradition believes while we need to be very clear and very Aware and very um, strong in dealing with those parts of ourselves we have the capacity when we put controls on them to live a life of holiness and of godliness and we are capable of compassion we are capable of great concern for one another of self-sacrifice for one another of service, of genius of artistic genius of scientific genius when we Channel greed into discovering the cure for cancer. I'm gonna do it. That's okay. Arrogance and greed and that channeled in that way, nothing would happen without it. Right? So that that, there's a generativity to those same instincts and impulses that can tear us down and destroy human society. And our job is to figure out how do we channel them in our context. For the good.
0: Rabbi, is, is is the Jewish contribution that we are the first to actually define this in that society that existed then? I don't know whether it's true or not, but it...
1: um, no, but the no, the Code of Hammurabi also forbids incest, forbids bestiality. Like there, there are things that are common um, in every ancient Near Eastern law code. So this is already an awareness in the ancient world. Was the
0: Canaanite tradition similar to this, or did it start to evolve where the Greeks obviously were not? I mean, so when did this start to codify and, and really become announced with the Jewish aspect of this?
1: I, it let, let me Let me answer your other question. I feel clearer about that question, which is I think the Jewish, the Israelite contribution to the scene right. is that every act we do has the potential to be either holy or profane. Everything that we do, okay. that is a new idea on the scene. There were laws about controlling your sexuality, but there wasn't an awareness that God cares that I use my sexuality in ways that contribute to me being in right relationship with God and my peers, in a way that now it is a holy, it's an expression of holiness. So the
0: Canaanite contrib- so, uh, the, the might have a rule that says you can't sleep with your neighbor's wife, but it's to protect order in the society. Correct. It doesn't have a holy aspect. Correct. That's the contribution.
1: Yes. I think that, that is the contribution, is that yeah. everything is potentially holy yeah. or Profane and having that constant awareness and legislating a bunch around it too. Don't get me wrong. We're not to be trusted with our own discretion. Um, But that is a huge contribution that both are true, the Yitzhara Tov, the Yitzhara, but they are to be used in the service of the one God. And that that God is deeply invested in us behaving in ways that are reflective of the divine image in which we are created. That is new on the scene. Um, So I have two Oh yeah.
3: And, yeah. Um, I have to say, for teens today, their idea of sexuality is very different than the one that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's who you love is who you love, really, truly. They that's how they feel about it. They have lots of friends that have different sexual orientations, and also there's kind of a thing where casual sex is not frowned on the way it was when I was younger. Um, but the thing that is talked about a lot is consent, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of conversations about how do you know that someone really wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. And, you know, like I have said to my son, well, what is consent? Like, how do you, and he says, well, you, every five minutes, you have to say, are you okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's interesting, interesting how it involves to, like, mm-hmm. what is a holy relationship now for... It's, to, it's very different from them. There's not as much taboos around sexuality. Um, I mean, I'm not saying everyone is having sex with everyone, but, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a different kind of idea and they're trying to come up with rules that are appropriate for the way their generation sees it. And, you know, that's what it's about is that there has to be
1: are You have no idea how much I fear for that child um yeah I'm buying a shotgun right after her bat mitzvah you, you want to come into my house and see my daughter no. um no problem um and it's a real, I mean, it is one of the core issues of our time that, you know, it's kind of what Richard was pointing to, that when, if, if all of the traditional understandings of what's right and wrong and respectful or not respectful, wholly right, when all of those fall away, what's left? And the quicker it changes, it's hard to, catch up. It's hard, it's hard to like, you know, put things back in place, you know, but my bet is for whatever's swinging this way, you know, there will be a gentle swing back. Um, you know, I worry about who gets caught in the right. in the you know it being to one extreme or the other. That's what I worry about for my daughter more than anything. Right. Is you know thinking this is okay and truly believing it's okay and then regretting deeply you know that interaction. That that scares me more than anything else. Look, if she's happy, oh God, okay, I'm not putting this out there into the world. Um, I just it's it's not her sexuality and her sexual engagement that scares me. It's it is this issue of consent that at what point are you able really to consent yeah. right am i she wanted to get her ears pierced and i and i said you're too young to make that decision and she's like but i know that i want pierced ears why am i too young and i said you're old enough to know you want pierced ears i believe you 100% and i don't believe that's going to change but you've never experienced pain like that enough to know that you're ready to experience that kind of pain Oh, look at them shaking their heads over there. So, that it's not even the point. Not even the point. My my point was. What was my point? <laughs> <laughs> my, point
3: <laughs>
1: my, my point. My my point. <laughs> 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 right. My. Out of control. Consent. Right. So, if. How, at what point can I consent to something that I haven't ever experienced enough to know whether or not I'm really ready for it?
4: Yeah. I, don't have I
1: can, yet. Am I, old enough? I, I can, now you could. I, I can think I know I want that, but I've never been through it. Right. So I, I'm worried about decisions that are big enough in our time that, that we don't have the experience to make. Um, And I'm not sure the answer to that question. Right. At one point she said, all right, now I'm ready. However painful it is, enough people have gone through it and I'm really ready and I can handle the pain. And I said, "Okay, then we'll do it. Um, But I don't know what that is for sexuality. I don't know what that is for consent to, to what that means for a girl i you know i know for boys too it's a big issue in terms of their intimacy sure and their self image and all the things that happen for girls there's still this level i just I, I i when do they know that they're ready for that i truly honestly and i'm very sex positive i'm extremely feminist and sex positive and i still really worry about how do you know if you've never done it the impact that it's gonna have? And...
3: So you can't have sex till you're married. The, the, I
1: think 32 is a perfectly wonderful compromise between what I want and what she wants. 32 is a good, is a good target. I remember myself as a youngster
2: when I first had The idea for me is, and when I said my daughter, I said, You'll be old enough when you can handle the consequences. That's right. Mm-hmm. right. And that's what I said to her. But at the same time, I remember as a child, when I was a child, as an a, a teenager, I used to think they made so much emphasis on it. Right. And it makes the whole thing love is attached to this, but it's, you know, I, I have to it, well, say it's, it, it's very, <laughs> it's very And very and, and in that oh, sense,
1: absolutely. Leviticus is right. completely relevant. Well, so he's he's let's done. look at Look at the page that says being pro-gay and hanging in there with Leviticus. I just love the name of that chapter. That's just a great name for a chapter. And go down to the third paragraph. Um, In discussing this very question, the contemporary Jewish and feminist theologian Judith Plaskow proposes that our ideal be the unification of sexuality and spirituality, which is made possible through, quote, the exercise of respect, responsibility, and honesty, Commensurate with the nature and depth of the particular relationship as basic values in any sexual connection. So she gives us a starting place. Plaskow's ready to put herself out there and give us a starting place. Right? That she says to Richard's question, this is it. To Linda's question. This is it. The exercise of respect, responsibility, and honesty commensurate with the nature and depth of the particular relationship that those should be basic values in any sexual connection. So they're not, she's saying they're not the same across the board. It might be a casual one night stand, right? Then that has different parameters on it than, you know, a a committed intimate relationship would have in terms of what respect and other things Mm -hmm. and honesty look like in the context of that relationship. Okay. Go to your last page.
0: One with oh God!
1: I, now I don't know. So what was the one with a big blank space at the end. Thirty, thirty,
0: uh, foot, footnote
4: thirty-two.
1: <laughs> so the second, the second paragraph of small letters, small writing. In other words. Um, I'm not even sure. I think it, this is uh, rabbis Sandy and Dennis Sasso, a married couple. In other words, we must learn to look at the overarching divine principles of love and justice and learn to. Now, she's, they're talking about this whole business of using sacred texts, right? How, how we use these texts um, to use sacred texts that teach the values of equality, human dignity and fairness to critique those texts that do not. So how are they saying we should pick from Leviticus what we keep and what we toss? Let's read it again. We must learn to look at the overarching divine principles of love and justice. Those are universal and timeless, they're arguing. And learn to use sacred texts that teach the values of equality, human dignity, and fairness to critique those texts that do not. So we point to the text that male and female, God created them both in God's image. And we should read every other text through the lens of that. Right? Fairness, equality, right? Because those are our values. They are in our Torah. Some of this stuff is a temporal understanding of how one brings holiness into sexual relationships or eating. We need to use these overarching values. I completely agree with this as a reconstructionist to critique every other text. And if the text no longer stands up to these criteria, then they don't, they're temporal and they don't speak to us anymore as binding in any way. Um, in terms of looking at things ethically and morally and spiritually. Yeah. Um, we have to decide what those texts are, right? Um, they, they just give us the kind of broad category, but we, we have to figure out what those texts are but, and aren't.
0: But in addition to deciding which texts are or aren't, don't we also have to recognize that the, that what constitutes equality, human dignity, and fairness are not always absolute contents. What, what is justice? Yes, is I mean there's 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 justice in the divine sense that you know we you know that God always seeks justice, but how we define justice is something that is also it's not an absolute correct right and so like when people talk about social justice now and you know justice is justice and unfair applications of justice and all that sort of stuff even if we use the broad transcendent categories like that. Even that is somewhat temporal in nature.
1: So that is what I would call job security. <laughs> right? So, right. So that means we're going to pick the text that we think are text about justice because we still believe that justice is a relevant transcendent concept for us as Jews that is compelling, right? That is binding on my life somehow, uh, and expressive of holiness. Now we have to sit in Torah study and debate and figure out, looking at those texts, looking at new texts, looking at, you know, other writers, what does that mean? Right. And what laws flow from that? We could we could be together in this room and have a complete and, wow, unbelievable understanding of something and go out and vote for two different people. Mm-hmm. Based on that understanding, well, I don't know now that we could say that in this election anymore, but um, but, um, but but right that that ultimately we could come down on two sides of a debate about what should happen in society, a law, or anything else, but we've had the conversation and all leave feeling a commitment to justice, and then I understand what that means for me when we're talking about the death penalty. You may have a completely different understanding, but we have to stay in dialogue about it, not just together on opposing sides, says our tradition, but over time we have to allow our circumstances and what we've learned and who's thinking and writing and teaching these days or what the circumstances are these days to inform a changing attitude towards that you know like what if we what if we have cameras and complete dna whatever so that we know people are guilty you know of something we have it on film would we feel differently about the death penalty i'm just saying we have we have to allow our decisions, however morally clear we are at one moment or unclear, um, to change with, with what we're um, exposed to.
4: When she talked about her teenager, and I think of like the undeveloped brain because they don't, they go to places they're able to follow these kinds of things that we talked about, like at the higher self, because that's where they are. And we talk about us as human beings developing from a baby to wisdom, hopefully, and finding our own self versus the collective we
0: that yeah, that's might right. Shelly, get out of control like if brain. you keep digging at a deeper <laughs> level like you're talking
4: about love as a base or whatever those kinds of things you always seem it always seems to feel i don't know at least to me the the uh, like the right way to be in, in this world Does that
1: make sense? yes i missed part of the point i'm not sure which part i, mean, I missed just, i think the teenage i mean
4: you try to think of yourself as a teenager Right. instead of your children's right. teenagers and right. how you felt was that you were striving and struggling and you understood concepts of love and respect and maybe those change as you get older right. but that's part of the journey of becoming more mature is wrestling with those and sometimes making mistakes that's but right. always feeling like at least you've got it you got to, you know you've got a handle on some of those ideas teenagers are not like you know, zombies walking around j- waiting
3: for j- the brain to form. They're really wrestling with all that stuff. <laughs> when I, I was a wrong. teenager, though, it was shameful to do some of the things that teenagers do. That. Mm-hmm. So there was a boundary. Your mother would say the same about you when you were a teenager. Right, but right, so, it's, this is what I'm saying. But, but I feel I, like for them, they're developing an understanding of how to deal with this is harder. It's harder. It's hard yeah. Yeah. It, I, I mean, everybody says that about their, their next
1: And time. everybody's well, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is getting harder, because it's changing faster. And everything's more public. Everything goes on Facebook. Well, for them, it's not Facebook. but Snapchat or you know, Insta, whatever, these days. So, um, but, but my point is n- nobody's – I don't ever want to say in any way that I at all underestimate how much teenagers have going on and how thoughtful they are and that they do have concepts in place that we hopefully have given them and taught them by putting them in this loving, amazing society and school system. Like, I'm not suggesting that. I don't ever want to write off young people. Ever. My, my, my only concern, and I'll, I'll say it again because I still feel it, is that there are things that they cannot know mm-hmm. the impact of until after they've done it and they regret it. Forever. Herpes is forever. I'm, I'm serious about this. There are things they can't know when they can handle the consequences. They think they know. And it's one time. And he's a good guy, so I'm not gonna catch anything. Th- that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Consec- when I'm not, I totally get it that they are wrestling. I believe they are amazing young people who are doing amazing things. I, I My concern is their frontal lobes have not caught up with the things they have access to. and And they're making decisions, including smoking marijuana, that, and I've heard it twice this week in my office about teenagers. So they're smoking dope. Thinking they've got control of it, while that marijuana is changing their frontal lobes and the development of the hardware of their brains. Okay, so now we're gonna—they know the consequences. They're gonna use an impaired brain to make choices about their brain development. Like I, I told him that
2: his frontal lobe won't be developed until he's about 22,
1: 24. That's exactly right. So anyway, my point being, I it just it's just worrisome that they have so much access to things and so little yet you know experience or or capacity to sit with
4: someone
1: and they weren't wrong they weren't that's my point they weren't wrong to be concerned that our inclinations will pull us in ways that are not good for us. Do I want to go back to this <laughs> certainly not um do I think we should be free for all like do what you want. It's fine. It's an experience of the 60s. No. Right. So, you know, it's all about the muddy middle. All right. We're going to close with this quote uh, by the Sassos. Uh, no, I'm sorry. By Maurice Harris. Um, to the Sassos understanding of the Bible's deepest witness, I'd like to add one of the central values of Leviticus to strive to bring holiness to every dimension of our life. It's up to us to figure out what it means to do that. Using all the tools and the best information about the human condition that we have, those tools include the Bible and centuries of its interpretation, our ability to think independently and reassess received beliefs when they appear to be causing harm, and our capacity to open our eyes to the beauty and goodness in the people and the relationships taking place right in front of us. Good job.